This week on the show, we're looking at an article about debugging Lisp in deep space, a zero-dependency website with OpenBSD and ASCII doc, deleting old snapshots on FreeBSD, full multiprocess support in LLDB server is arriving, a basic fix between PF tables and macros by Rubenert, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 465, Deep Space Debugging, recorded on the 13th of July, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon. Patreon page is patreon.com slash bsdnow. And there you have various options for supporting us, chipping a little bit into our little pot and support us. Thank you for that. Yes, and you get ad-free versions of the episodes uh, a little bit early. Exactly that, yeah. Uh, hi, we are your hosts, by the way, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Here we have our great episode for this week, or at least for you. The next one will be even greater, like every week. So this is what we have for you today. Headlines start with NASA programmer remembers debugging Lisp in deep space. Yeah. So debugging software that is running 150 million miles away is something most of us will never have to deal with, thankfully. <laughs> but one former NASA programmer, uh, software engineer Ron Garrett, uh, shared his experience of diagnosing a faulty Lisp software on a deep space uh, spacecraft mission in one of the recent episodes of the Co-Recursive podcast. So Garrett shared a remarkable story about debugging in deep space, along with some memories from the early days of programming Along the way, Garrett offered a refreshing perspective on what has changed and what hasn't in the world of programming. He also explores the unique challenges of writing code that's going to run on a spacecraft. And he remembered his starring role in one truly glorious moment for the history of the Lisp programming language. So uh, Garrett was working as a research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory from 1988 until the year 2000, and again from 2001 through 2004. His specialty was autonomous mobile robots. He helped to pioneer what is today the de facto standard autonomous mobile robot control architecture. So his team worked on a prototype of the uh, robotic Mars rover Sojourner. So on the podcast, he describes uh, the very limited programming options that existed in 1988 uh, in the world, you know, before Java, Python, JavaScript, and C++ even existed. So there was basically, there was Pascal, C, BASIC, and machine code. And that's pretty much it in terms of real languages. To get anything done in any of these languages, it was just really, really hard. The code for most spacecraft ended up being written in assembly language because of that. But then there was Lisp, a language based on abstracting programs, uh, or sorry, problems cleanly into lists and functions. While C programs worry about things like dangling pointers, Lisp has an automatic memory management. It's just so much faster and easier to get things done when the language you're using provides you with most of those high-level abstractions. Uh, and in a world where the only language that has that was Lisps, knowing Lisp uh, became like a superpower. And he says, with Lisp, every problem becomes a compiler problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It just blew everything else out of the water back in the day. Uh, but back in that day, Lisp wasn't really used that much around NASA. There was quite a bit of prejudice against Lisp because it was weird and unfamiliar. And it had this strange garbage collection technology that just you never really knew uh, it would just stop your process dead in its tracks. 
Uh, so Garrett's group found it useful for memory-constrained hardware. Lisp could be used uh, to fashion a custom language specifically for the problem at hand, and then compiling that into onto the robot's hardware. But as Bell uh, puts it, every problem then becomes a compiler problem. <laughs> uh, Garrett's team basically wrote and tested their code on a robot simulator, which was a Macintosh computer, before installing it on the actual rover and performing the time-consuming test drive uh, on the rover. Despite the code base uh, the group developed, when Sojourner uh, reached Mars, it was powered with C code. Yet in 1998, a new NASA director uh, launched NASA's new Millennium Project, a pilot program to demonstrate different and cheaper technologies with a, uh, a number of deep space exploration missions. This meant that their Lisp code got a second life. Garrett remembered on the podcast, the autonomous uh, technology that the team had started developing for rovers was then repurposed, and its new mission was to be a flight controller. So they worked on uh, an innovative decision-making software using a custom language written in Lisp, specifically designed to avoid the possibilities of the dreaded race condition, where two concurrent uh, threads tried to do the same thing at the same time. Uh, it was tested for days and days and days, and on that exact same hardware that was going into space. So we were very confident that it was going to work, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Garrett explained that during their three days of flight controlling, there was a time at which it was supposed to do something, and that time came and went, and it didn't do the thing, and it was supposed to do the thing. Uh, so alarm bells started to ring. Now this code that's been proven deadlock-free seems to have frozen while it was 150 million miles from home. Oops. Uh-oh. So uh, it was a tense situation. We had no idea what was going on, and everything we did uh, when we decided to do something... We would do it, and then we'd just sit around and wait for an hour to get the result, because latency. <laughs> yeah. After a team in a conference room reached their consensus, their command went through a review process that considered a number of layers of management, all of whom had to sign off before they could send the commands. After approval was obtained, the command went out uh, through a dedicated uh, hardwired network to one of the deep space uh, network's 70-meter-wide uh, uh, antennas, which sent the command flying through space at the speed of light. First, uh, they requested a backtrace. Uh, you know, why, what's going on here? A common programming operation that lists out the current like list of functions that have been called recently. It was almost uh, immediately obvious that was what was going wrong because there was this one process that was waiting for something that should have already happened. Uh, the problem was that it was, in fact, a race condition. The whole point of this using list was to avoid the race condition, but they, in fact, had a race condition. Uh, this was supposed to have been impossible. Unfortunately, one of the coders had called a lower-level Lisp function, which had inadvertently created an end run around the safety guarantees they had written in their custom language. Uh, so the team decided to manually trigger the event, which got the software running again. We didn't lose the spacecraft, and we did accomplish all the mission objectives, so technically it was a success. Technically, it was a success. But the development process was so painful and fraught with difficulty, and again, there were politics as well. So despite the fact that we actually did manage to get it to work, the autonomy project was canceled after that and it never flew again. Uh, in a 2002 essay on Garrett's personal website argues that the demise of Lisp at the JPL was a tragedy. The language is particularly well suited to this kind of software development and is often done there. You know, one of a kind, highly dynamic applications that must be developed at ex on extremely tight budgets and schedules. But Lisp was passed over for C++ and then Java with the rationale given that an attempt to follow best practices, uh, we're confusing best practices with standard practices. The two are not the same. And even beyond that, that's ultimately best isn't an unvarying standard. 
but should depend on the particulars of the current project at hand. So just saying C++ is always the best practice, I agree, is, is not necessarily correct. But uh, in a discussion on Hacker News, one commenter identified themselves as an engineer who'd been a payload software engineer for a 2009 mission uh, exploring the moon's South Pole. And they said they had used Lisp to write their own custom language for instrument command sequences and for simulating uh, that. So Lisp's simple, flexible syntax and macros made it easy to express patterns for commands and timings and so on. Uh, so they left Garrett with the reassuring thought, I think Lisp is still used in various nooks and crannies over at NASA. Wow, what a nice story. <laughs> Yeah, and these things fly. That's rocket science of sorts. Yeah, well, what's interesting, I, they didn't really get into details there. It's like, in addition to unsticking the process, uh, did they actually manage to, you know, update the code? And, you know, how on the edge of your seat are you the whole time while you're, you know, updating the software running on a spacecraft that's 150 mile, million miles away, knowing that if you did anything wrong and it doesn't reboot properly, you've just bricked a spacecraft. Yeah, and it's the big giant doorstop floating in space yeah oh <laughs> uh, well yeah this seems like the kind of thing you want not just boot environments but a whole system of like after the update set a timer that's running that's i guess like a hardware watchdog outside of the operating system part of the computer that'll just reboot it in half an hour if it doesn't get told that everything's okay yeah uh and, and you know fall back to the previously running software at least instead of just being stuck mm. And it shouldn't happen to the update system or the communication system to uh, where it calls home because otherwise, well, that was it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, now to a bit more earthly spaced things. Zero dependency website with OpenBSD and ASCII doc is what we found. And this one is a big tutorial. Um, but we should start at least uh, into it and then give you the rest to read on your own on our show notes. So they have um, fallen in love with a recent combination of software to make good looking websites and having an easy to manage web server. And they note at the top here that they want to clearly state that this is zero dependencies on the server. The server does not need ASCII doc installed to operate. ASCII doc is for the client to use and the server operates with zero package ads. So nothing else to install. Uh, Okay, so here really they find that it makes their life easier. They like to keep their blog up and there, uh, up, up here, and don't want to deal with database updates, language exploits, mute migrations, and so on. They also manage their church's website. They can't be having complex solutions that require large amounts of maintenance at multiple times a month because of a dozen pieces of software requiring version upgrades or what have you. Sure, some people have needs for elaborate content management systems, but sometimes you only need a simple site too. And why overcomplicate it? So in their current combo, they use OpenBSD and ASCII doc. Uh, we all know OpenBSD and ASCII doc is used because it's very easy to write content with, like right now for the blog we have here, and the output looks nice and clean. It's basic stripped away from being simple HTML, CSS. Uh, there's a big section on why uh, they like OpenBSD. We can skip that because many of these are uh, familiar. They have- But yeah, the, the basics of that one are the fact that a web server, the firewall, the Acme client for Let's Encrypt and rsync for doing backups are all built in. So they didn't have to install any packages. Yeah. And they quickly run through how you would configure the Acme client and the web server and even do as for uh, sudo-like functionality. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And then the ASCII doc portion reads, so you might be asking why they chose ASCII doc. They like ASCII doc because it's a simple markup language that lets them focus on the writing and layout. Markdown can do this too and is more common than ASCII doc. However, the fact that there isn't a standard markdown and they don't like any of the rendered output. With ASCII doc, they give a simple and clean default result in HTML and CSS. They also like that there are other themes they can use readily or they can make their own but they end up using the default theme and the dark theme that is available. Yeah, like when I was looking at converting all of the FreeBSD documentation from DocBook to ASCII doc, the two main things I liked about ASCII doc was first, there was a, a pretty one-to-one -one conversion from DocBook to ASCII doc mm. in that uh, like ASCII doc supported a lot of the more advanced things that DocBook was doing and the extra semantics it had around things. Uh, much better ability to create tables and like to have annotations and things like that. Uh, so it wouldn't lose a lot of the syntax that we had put into the, that some people had put a lot of effort into in the doc book. But the other thing was that ASCII docs is basically a superset of Markdown. So if you can write Markdown, you can just write Markdown and ASCII doc will mostly interpret that the same way, but you have the option of doing a bunch of these more extended things if you need to do something slightly more complicated for some code example or something. Yep. So while it's, it's not, you know, it's not just Markdown++, plus plus. Uh, it's close enough that, you know, people familiar with Markdown will be able to write basic ASCII doc, but ASCII doc gives you the ability to go much further when uh, that's what you're after. Yeah, and you first used that for papers.freebsd.org, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, and now it's uh, a bigger project has been started by someone else. The um, FreeBSD doc is now completely, and the website will probably follow that as the next step. So yeah, that has was, been converted. Uh, well, yeah, the, they even got on to the second step of after converting everything to DocBook, actually applying a new style and making it look much nicer. Mm. So I'm yeah. very happy with the, the work that the Docs team did uh, based on my early prototype. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, with this in mind, uh, they make here, um, they make it easy for anyone to see what is written and figure out what does what since the syntax is simple. And if you use editors like Visual Studio Code or ASCII Doc FX, get a nice preview. Uh, for them, uh, they just use Vim or well, use whatever you want. There is an example of what the web server configuration section looks like. They provide all the parts there. Uh, this is the Nginx config. Is that Nginx? Yeah. Um, then they talk a bit about the CLSS style they used, how they generate their ASCII doc. So that's a shell script that does a bit of ASCII doc rendering and compiles the different uh, directories together by doing a couple a couple of copies yeah so on the for freebsd we're using uh hugo the go static site generator and then it's calling ascii doctor for us um just to get a bit more but you know uh unlike this nice website here the freebsd doc thing is huge and it made sense hmm. to use the slightly bigger framework uh but in the end it's basically hugo powering ascii doctor in, in much the same way yep and so that you can use right away and um, massage it to your needs, basically. Use it uh, for your own purposes. And they provide a couple of bonus sections even. Um, so for example, they like to know when their backups are working so that they check if these are the recent ones. They want to get notified when a backup is failing. And their previous backup script, they can... Or they, you can insert a conditional to say, if the backup happened, submit a pass. If it didn't for some reason, send a fail. And they do this to note ping with their push checks, which you can make a post request and form some JSON. You can submit any data to. Then there's uh, 
Oh, that was already the, bo the bonus bonus. Um, they have a regular bonus. Uh, they had previously mentioned backups. So here's the one uh, they originally wrote. Then the bonus bonus is about updating that and letting people know if something broke. And bonus X3, um, it's about syspatch from OpenBSD. And they say that syspatch-c uh, is a nice flag that will output any patches available and they submit that to their matrix server but of course you could create another node ping check or anywhere else you want to do a post request with any sort of data to a service that will notify you hey there's a new patch you might as well patch your web server while you're at so in conclusion they write a running operating system with high security is what you have now an easy operating system management really only needing to run syspatch reboot and sysupgrade a nice clean static website it really only requires simple syntax to know to write backups with open rsync backup notifications with node ping and nc definitely optional uh update notices if something is uh, for the admin's uh, eyes needed and since it's not often that a website update happens on some of their sites they really only need to keep track of running syspatch and upgrading if a new release comes out then any updates that do need to happen are a basic edit compile upload and put the new site content into place cool In our news roundup, we have something for the ZFS folks, FreeBSD deleting old snapshots. Yeah, so over on Jens Gressel's blog, and he says, there are some areas where you might want to automatically create snapshots via ZFS to have a backup ready if you need it. The features of ZFS make this straightforward and easy. However, this also means that you might run into trouble eventually because you have too many snapshots. While too many is a phrase uh, with widely varying concrete values depending on your system configuration, uh, and ZFS can easily handle making lots and lots of snapshots, you still might want to delete the older ones at some point uh, to get some of your space back, or just, you know, if you have thousands of snapshots of the same data set, it will start to make ZFS list of that data set slow. Uh, ZFS itself has no tooling for this, uh, just like it doesn't create the snapshots for you. Uh, but there are quite a few tools that you can use to do that. Um, so here's an example. Uh, the script below uses a combination of the date command and the command line calendar, BC, uh, to get an epic timestamp uh, for the given number of days. Uh, this is because on BSD, you cannot do something like date equals uh, 14 days ago. Afterwards, ZFS is queried for the snapshots for a certain uh, data set and told to skip the header line, so the capital H flag, uh, sort descendingly by the creation date, and they output only the name and the creation time of the data set. Uh, the display numbers in exactly uh, uh in exact values so dash p so it provides uh, parsable output instead of human readable output um so now zfs is going to print out the epic timestamp of each of those snapshots then we instru uh, instrument awk to filter out all the lines that are older than our given limit and have their names printed out these names are then given via xargs and then fed back into zfs destroy so basically they have a little script here that says days equals 30 they figure out today's date uh, and subtract, you know, that number of days times the number of seconds in a day. Then they do the ZFS list of, you know, type snapshot sorted by uh, descending creation time uh, and then oct that out and basically xargs-n1 ZFS destroy each of those snapshots. Mm -hmm. So it just automatically uh, prunes any snapshot that's older than the number of days set in the script and it will go through and clean things up okay would you add a p0 to that x arcs uh, invocation um if you did that you would run multiple zfs destroys at once uh because it's doing it for a certain data set 
it's probably not as helpful. Oh, right, yeah. Right, because um, ZF is only going to be able to modify each data set once at a time. Yeah. Now, if you're doing multiple separate data sets at once, you might do that uh, or something like mm. that. Yeah, I was just wondering because that's my mm -hmm. Xargs <laughs> use of choice. But yeah, you were right. Yes, uh, I, I do love to use Xargs with uh, capital P, either zero for all my CPUs or just some number to do whatever it is I'm after, you know, five sets of them at once instead <laughs> of, uh, you know, it's like if you have to delete a thousand files, if you just Xargs RM, it's going to fit as many of those file names on the command line as it can. And then when that's done, fit as many as it can a second time and keep doing that whereas if you do like dash n 100 rm uh it's going to delete 100 files at a time or up to 100 files at a time but then you can put the dash p 10 and then you have issued 10 separate rms each with 100 files and that might turn out to actually be significantly faster than uh deleting all 1000 files with one rm invocation wonderful next up we have news from the ever busy moritz systems they have now multi full multiprocess support in LDB server. And we've covered that blog a couple of times with the contract they have been uh, from you under from the FreeBSD Foundation to continue the modernization of LLDB's debugger support for FreeBSD. And in this goal here, they have the primary uh, full support for multiprocess GDB, remote serial protocol extension in LLDB server. And this is the major part here. That's why it's highlighted. Uh, the first bits are just what is FreeBSD. Basically, they have uh, just a bit of an informational part here. Multi-target and multi-process extensions to the protocol. So the GDB remote serial protocol can be used to debug a wide range of target classes from regular user space applications though uh, through kernels and virtual machines to bare metal targets. These targets can be classified into three groups. First, the single thread targets where no parallel execution is possible. Then they have the second, the multi-threaded targets, where multiple threads can run in parallel, but only a single process can be debugged. And the third is the multi-process targets, where multiple processes can be debugged simultaneously, with every one of them possibly including multiple threads, and so it goes down and down and down. Appropriately, the protocol could be thought of being layered to cover the needs of each of these groups. The base layer would provide the minimal subset of packets necessary to run and inspect a single thread, with additional layers providing the support for debugging multiple threads and multiple processes respectively, debugging targets with a single execution thread. The simplest use case for the remote protocol is debug a single threaded process. This could be anything from a user space program, not using threading to a bare metal target. Depending on the exact target, the process and thread identifiers may be present or not. If that, if they are not, LLDB uses one and one internally. A really trivial debugging session they have provided here in that uh, blog post. Uh, in that, the client is sending two C, like continue packets, to resume the program's execution. The first packet receives two replies. The first one is a zero output packet that is an LLDB extension used to carry output from the inferior to the LLDB. Yeah, it's inferior, not interior, to the LLDB client. In this instance, it is hex encoded hello world. The second one is a T packet indicating stopping due to a signal. The first two digits are signal number in hex six stop here, and they are followed by additional information about the stop target. The second packet receives a, a single W reply indicating that the target has exited with code zero. That's really a bit uh, <laughs> on the weird side, but uh, for people who do this regularly over the network or over multiple targets, 
they are familiar with those. Uh, in order to debug multi-threaded programs, a subset of the protocol packets need to be extended to be thread-aware. Examples of packets that need extending are execution-related packets and register operations. On the other hand, like for example memory operations do not need thread awareness since all threads in a multi-threaded program share the same memory space. Yeah, so they have an example here where uh, when they got a stop signal, it actually, in addition to telling you the signal that happened, it tells you which thread actually got the signal. Yeah, that's important because you don't want to stop all of them, just a single one or a specific one that you want to debug. Right, right. you want to know which one got the signal. Yeah. yeah. Then they talk a bit about debugging multiprocess targets. These are uh, the support for debugging multiple processes is indicated explicitly by, by the multiprocess plus extension in queue supported packet. This extension extends packets that were already thread aware with process identifier awareness. It also adds process awareness to some more packets. There, the most interesting part is extending thread identifiers to include the process ID. This makes it possible to integrate multiprocess support with minimal changes to the actual protocol. And in the multiprocess mode, thread identifiers use the following syntax. So you have P, the process ID, and then a dot with the thread ID. So these are the distinctions with the dot. First, process ID, then the thread ID. Multiprocess debugging in non-stop mode. The main limitation of the regular GDB protocol is that it can report only one stop event for every resume packet. The non-stop mode lifts this limitation, enabling multiple processes to run simultaneously and report their stops independently. So there, they always have a little example there. Uh, in this one, the main difference is that we resume both processes simultaneously. And they both run until they stop. The server reports the first event asynchronously and queues the remaining events to be obtained through queue, uh, view stop packet. And they summarize the changes in the uh, uh, LLDB server. That's a bit of a longer section here. They updated also the test suite. So their patches introduced 53 new individual tests that covered both added functionality and existing packets that had not been fully tested. And we, uh, they also have been periodically checking the status of existing tests on FreeBSD. Whenever regressions were introduced, they would attempt to resolve them or to report them and mark the corresponding test as expected failure. As such, it would not cause the test suite to fail. And at the same time, the test runner would explicitly remind them to re-enable it when the underlying problem was fixed. And so at the time of this writing, they have 504 unsupported tests, but the past tests are 2,058 already, and only 13 of those expectedly failed. And note that the few tests can still be unstable under high system load, and they could fail occasionally, uh, but then we have to look at those tests and what the system does in those cases. So we will... Uh, on this blog with more updates as they come out because as we mentioned this has been or is funded by the FreeBSD Foundation and will include the LLDB uh, with much more functionality that benefits pretty much everyone using that. Uh, so next up we have a post from Rubenerd. Uh, he's looking at fixing a, a PF configuration issue a friend of his ran into. Uh, so he was working on a FreeBSD client this morning and they had messed up their PF rules on their VM's firewall, and they needed some help fixing it. Uh, he knows that you should always reload your rules after making changes using the PFCTL uh, command so that you can roll them back if there's an issue. Uh, for example, he uh, added, <laughs> oops, sorry. Uh, so for example, when he uh, ran that on the config, it printed out that there were syntax errors on lines 20 and 21. 
uh, and so the load rules were not reloaded. Uh, and so, you know, you always want to make sure your firewall rules are reboot safe. So you want to make sure that the configuration that's running is the one you think it is and that it's reloaded and that if there's a problem, you fix it. Because what you don't want is after a reboot, the firewall tries to reload, gets a syntax error. And so you end up with the firewall rules not loaded at all. And then if you're in default block, you, you can't access the machine at all. Mm. Uh, so in his example, uh, it turns out that the, uh, they had a macro trying to define a list of uh, subnets that shouldn't be seen uh, with packets coming in. So they had a list of Martians here, like 10.0.0.0 slash 8, 172.0.0.1 slash 8, and uh, 192.168.0.0 slash 9, which that slash 9 might be a typo too, unless they're specifically exempting the, the first chunk of that. Mm. Anyway, um, it looks like it was meant originally was a table. So the table syntax in PF is table, the name, and then in curly braces, a list of addresses. Uh, but when they switch it to a macro, trying to define a name, in this case, Martians equals, and then in quotes, in curly braces, a list of IP addresses, uh, it requires the commas between the addresses uh, to work correctly. Uh, and that was the syntax error in this case. Subtle. Uh, yeah, but it reminded me of, of uh, you know, a kind of pro tip that I often use is when I am reloading my firewall rules, I have the old rules saved somewhere and then the new rules. And I will uh, configure something with no hop or something to load the new rules, but after two minutes, fall back to the old rules. Mm. So that if the firewall rule change somehow locks me out uh, because of a typo that wasn't a syntax error or who knows what, uh, that after two minutes, I'm able to get back in and traffic goes back to normal. Uh, and if it does work, then I can just, you know, switch back to the new rules and make those permanent. Yeah. Uh, but it's really handy to have that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, like user share examples, there's uh, a version of this for IPFW uh, as well, um, which could be easily adapted for PF. Now, IPFW makes it a little easier because you can have entire different sets of rules loaded in memory and easily flip between them. Uh, but, you know, since your PF rules are in a file, it's easy enough to have two files and flip between them in the same way. <laughs> Plus, it's always nice to have, you know, even if it's not full version control, just have the last couple sets of your file rules, firewall rules laying around because you never know when you might want firewall rules you were running last week. <laughs> yeah, definitely keep your back door open in case you need it, but only so often, <laughs> only for updates on the rules. Okay, great post by Rubenerd reminding us to be careful. Wasn't there a recent issue in Canada about this? Not having internet? Yep. Ah, well, you can all read it in the news. <laughs> you didn't hear it first, definitely. Yeah, we did uh, quite a bit of coverage on, on my other podcast, uh, 2.5 2. Admins, uh, mostly about, you know, after the very large outage uh, that affected about a third of all Canadians for something like 15 hours and took out uh, service to 911 and some emergency dispatching stuff and uh, the debit card processing network for the whole country Ooh. and a bunch of other things. Um, there's definitely demands about uh, what the ISP is going to do to not be so easily vulnerable and also uh, even just forcing the competing telcos to cooperate in emergencies like that and make it possible for your cell phone to roam to one of the other providers so that you can still dial 911. Yeah, like in emergency situations, that's between life and death, especially for 15 yeah. hours. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Huh.
<sighs> okay, uh, let's move on to feedback and questions, which we also try to help you in certain ways um, as much as we can here. The first one that sent us a question or is listed here is Ben with a jail question. Ben writes, hello, Benedict, Alan, Tom and JT. Thank you for the reply of my last question. You're welcome. I like to dig deeper into BSD and stumble over your names from time to time. We are in there somewhere, yeah. <laughs> An interesting challenge approached me from the side and I see the chance to learn a little more about FreeBSD. Great. I installed a tool with Node.js. The tool accesses two files in the root slash dot tool directory while starting. When starting the tool directly, it works. Uh, when I try to start it with an RC script, it doesn't work. When I launch the service with help from a daemon, uh, it starts, but it seems it does not find the files in slash root dot uh, tool. It seems a service has another view on the jail. Can you explain the difference between running a command from terminal and starting the same as a service? I think most likely uh, the difference is environment variables. Uh, so the uh, like dollar home environment variable might not be set. Uh, like when, when you use the service command to start stuff, it clears out the environment and has only the bare bones and it might actually be looking for like dollar home slash dot tool or something. Uh, in which case, it's just a matter of setting that environment variable uh, for the RC script or or otherwise changing how it accesses that path. Uh, so that's probably the most likely thing is that the service command is specifically clearing stuff out of the environment so that stuff set in the shell of the user who's starting the service doesn't accidentally cause weird things to happen to the service. Uh, yeah, I've seen, you know, Back in the day when that wasn't how things worked, you could get really weird things where like the service works if it's started by me, but it doesn't work if it's started by yeah. Benedict because he used a different shell or his, his you know, .profile file had some different lines in it and it affected whether a certain environment variable was set or not and that changed how the service worked. Um, so yeah, it's probably the way Node.js is looking up the home directory of the user to find that .tool directory uh, and that just the environment variable not being set. You can often run into the similar things if you're trying to use Contap, uh, where you know the path environment variable isn't set, and it's like, yeah, I, I couldn't find the Node.js interpreter because it's under user local bin or whatever. Mm. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of of fixing up those environment variables so that they contain the values you're looking for. Yeah. Consider those daemons as separate users with their own little world they live in. With a bit of specialty that they cannot log in and stuff. Well, but they have their own. Sure, but they're like this one. This one's running as root. It's just the the environment variables provided by your shell are not always there when you run as a service because you don't want any contamination. Yeah, so the service is very so limited. It's mostly, your your RC script for this probably just needs to set that environment variable to the correct value, and then it will just work. Mm -hmm. Yep. Keep asking us questions like these, uh, and hopefully you have a way to get uh, more into BSD. Next up is Malcolm with an encryption uh, feedback or question. Malcolm writes, I'm interested in trying to use ZFS encryption. I thought a good place to start might be the slash temp file system. <laughs> Additionally, I thought rather than depending on the system to clean up temp on boot, which can sometimes take a while if I've put a lot of junk in there, I could just have a per boot key. Is that possible? Do you have any suggestions for how to set this up? So that's not really a use case ZFS was designed with having in mind, but you can do that. Uh, you just, you know, at startup, instead of um, creating, or instead of trying to clear slash TMP, you just destroy the data set and then make a new one with the ephemeral encryption key. 
Uh, and you just do that at startup every time. Just destroy temp and create a new temp with a different key. Uh, and that would do that. Um, honestly, for keeping slash temp clean, what I usually do is just make a snapshot of it when it's empty and I just roll back to the snapshot. Mm, quick and easy. Uh, to just easily clean it out. I use the same trick for like uh, user OBJ for when I'm building world and stuff because it's a lot faster than having to like remove the ch flags off a bunch of special files and so on or just waiting for rm to delete like nine gigs of stuff whereas the zfs rollback takes you know 0.3 seconds um so you can do that uh separately freebsd's regular block encryption system Geli, has a special mode for this uh it can also use it you can use your swap to have an ephemeral key exactly like this so you could do uh your temp on like a, a memory file system of some kind with Geli and do it that way but uh, yeah, with setup encryption, you would just uh, at startup where you would normally configure uh, slash temp clearing, you would just zfs destroy dash r, you know, pool slash temp, and then zfs create with your options for your, all your encryption stuff and and generating a random key. Uh, and so at every boot up, you would just throw away temp and make a new one with a new key, and then it would always be ephemeral. Uh, but that's kind of the opposite of zfs's use case it's you know zfs really wants to keep all your data not throw it away and it, it expects you know your encryption is is about doing other things but uh yes it is perfectly possible to do that yeah and remember each data set can have its own unique key so you can have a data set for i don't know some other family member that only that person knows and has and can unencrypt un those while other data sets have different keys and uh, vice versa yeah, uh, I think the the big, real, interesting use case with ZFS is the fact that you know with full disk encryption, your data is only really protected by the encryption when the machine is powered off. Because when it's powered on, you've mounted the encrypted data set or the encrypted hard drive, the whole disk. But with ZFS, you can unmount and unload the key for data sets you're not using right now, and then they are protected. And then only when you mount them and re-enter the key are they accessible again until you unmount them. It can be really useful if you, you know, have some data that you only need to access on occasion. You can keep it unmounted when you don't need it, and then it's actually benefiting from the at-rest encryption. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Uh, I think we have this uh, next one already. I remember those from an earlier episode. So uh, this is where we cut off this episode. Thank you all for listening. Keep sending us feedback, by the way, to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we'll have other questions answered like this. And we hope you join us again next time when we have another episode of BSD Now.